You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. As always, the red record button is on, Bracken. You're looking a little more put together today. Well, I was going to comment on your outfit because we're both bundled up today. And I think it's for the same reason. Why are you so bundled up today? Normally, you're shirtless and sweating. Yep. Because it's... We get uh we've started hitting real cold, not real cold, but fall weather here in the Midwest, and we have yet to turn on our heat. We have the air conditioning still on at sixty six, and the temp outside <laughs> is like forty nine right now. We haven't so it kind of is yet. like a heater. Yeah, we haven't transitioned to like turning the heat on yet. Well, and our problem is we have this hundred year old home which doesn't have room for central air, so. To avoid divorce, I slapped in five window units this July. <laughs> Just uh, You have five window units? One in every room or what? No, one on each end downstairs, one on each end upstairs, maybe four? No one knows. There's no way of telling. But in order to turn the heat on, I've got to take those out and then get the uh, windows put back down. It's not a big process, but it's been raining nonstop. When those babies are... All five of them are firing. Does it sound like you're in like a wind turbine in the middle of your house or like in no, the middle of like a, it's not They're little five thousand BTU units. It's just enough to take the sting off of it, and mm. it worked. It worked well. It's not what I would want visually or long term, but <laughs> it got us through the summer with no divorce. That's important, I would say. Lisa has very few requests ever in life. She's about as low maintenance as as a woman could ever be, probably as a guy could ever be. But she does not want to sweat while sitting still in our house. I understand. I understand that request. I'm with her too. When do we transition to turning the heat on? Because we're both, I mean, I have three layers, a t-shirt, a hooded sweatshirt, and a jacket on. You have a stocking cap, a t-shirt, and a sweatshirt on right now. We might need to transition. You might need to get those window units out, man. This morning, actually, Lisa got out of bed and said, I'm turning the heat on. I said, I have to take the units out first. She said, okay, do it. Working on cars, taking window units out. You're a real handyman. You should start a secondary business. I am not that handy, but I'm really good at watching YouTube and then emulating what I see. Ah, yeah. And it takes like five times as long as like somebody who knows what they're doing would take to do the same task. Oh, so frustrating. I do the same thing. There's this amazing app. I don't know if you've seen this app. I've used it a ton. It's called Tackle, T-A-K-L. And so Tackle is where you can hire out anything to clean your house, to shovel your driveway, to put together anything, to fix your car, to fix your sink, to take out the trash. It doesn't matter. And basically all you do is you get on Tackle and you say, I got a broken sink. It's leaking. And you take a picture of it. You throw it on Tackle and you will get, you'll offer like, hey, 50 bucks. You can put a money offer out. And then you'll have 20 people wanting to fix your sink within 30 seconds. And you pick yours, your your person based off their reviews, and they come to your house and they fix your crap. I really like that. Oh, it's a brilliant idea. They do anything. I mean, anything you can think of. Downloading it right now. T-A-K-L, Tackle. Um, and the nice thing is, is that you call the price. And if somebody doesn't want to do it for that price, then they just don't say, I want to do your job. So. Um, that's a little inside tip that has saved me a ton of hassle on little projects lately. 
Here's the thing, though. I like the process of learning how to do something. Yeah, well, when you're in a pinch for time, tackle has been a lifesaver. All right. Anything else going on in your world before we dive into today's topics? Today is the day we pick up the camper. Ah, you got it? Yeah. Oh, man. Are you excited? I am. And I'm excited for the kids as even more than for myself. Are you going to be able to use it this fall? Yeah. You're going to make a camping trip happen? Well, we're going to sleep in it tonight. Because <laughs> you're so excited about yeah, it in your driveway? <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, we're going to probably next weekend get out and rip it up. Lows are in the, I don't know, low 40s tonight, so you better bundle up. We're bred tough around here, Kirk. You must be. Um, that's a very exciting. Where is this camper? Heartland. Oh, close. Yeah, 45, 48-minute drive. No Take an hour and a half coming back, pulling it at 20 miles per hour with a minivan. <laughs> <laughs> I brought up um, buying a tiny house, which I'm serious about. And the number of links I've gotten sent to me really? about tiny homes, mostly from clients in the gym I have that feel very passionate about the fact I should get one. And then they want to rent it out, you know, so get a tiny home so I can rent it from you to use it. You should timeshare it with them. Well, I'm thinking I could probably just, you know, turn a break even situation out of this. So I'll keep you guys posted on that. That excites me. I like the idea of tiny homes. Yeah, congratulations on your camper and your van. Again, I still stand by my words that that is the dad life in the epitome of the dad life. You got well, it all going. Podcast, but when I talked to you on the phone about it, you said, I'll tell you what, I fully support that. I like that idea. Of? Getting a pop-up. I do support it. Why, why do you think I have a negative connotation to the dad life? Yeah, yeah. No, I feel, no, I feel, God, no. I feel attacked. That's a distinguished decision there, Bracken, for the greater good of the family. That's right. Yeah. All right. Today, um, Q&A. We have a lot of questions that Mm -hmm. come in. I mean, we are getting constant questions on our social media, which is fantastic. It tells us you guys are listening. It tells us you guys are curious to know more. And we love seeing you engaged. And honestly, they just piled up way too damn fast for us to push a Q&A episode any further off. I thought we did one two or three weeks ago. It turns out it's been over a month. Well, I mean, it's true, but it's also, I mean, even in a month's time period, I think we may have 40 questions that are worth diving into. Yeah. Yeah. And those those are the questions that we didn't answer to them and said, we're saving this for an episode or that we answered to them and want to rehash for everyone else. That doesn't touch upon the ones that we just answered and moved on. Correct. Most questions we answer real quick via text on like the messenger, but um, these all warrant a longer response. So we're diving into that today. And there's a really good like variation of questions today. Mm -hmm. So I think we got some good ones. I'm starting. Okay. Why don't you start? Do you want to go through? So I put out an Instagram poll. Do you want to go through the screenshotted ones first and then hit the Instagram poll questions? Should we do it that way? Uh, Whatever. I have 13 here. All right. Why don't you start then? But I have one that I feel like is... It sums up our podcast in a nutshell. So I want to start with it. Okay. 80-20 question here. How does strength work or cross-training factor in to 80-20, particularly if those are hard, high effort, heart rate efforts? Or when it comes to 80-20, are we using that polarization just for run efforts? I do a lot of cross-training. I'm wondering how to factor in cross-training and strength training and circuit training. That's a really intelligent question. Mm, um, my first answer to that would be, there's not going to be a perfectly right answer to that question. Right. However, I think 
when we talk polarized training, first of all, we're talking running specific in general. We're talking run training. Yes. We talked in an episode cardio. about cardio. Yeah. We talked about non like adding non-impact cardio to your workouts to get more volume. We've talked about adding in Metcons to build high-end capacity on top of your running. And that's where the lines get blurry. And I think that's what this person is referring to. Yes. Correct. Um, first of all, in my opinion, strength training is in the 80. If you're doing structured strength training with rest, heavy weights, that counts in my 80, which would be my recovery because my heart rate's not getting high. I assume you're the same? No. You're not? No. You consider strength training part of your 20? No, I don't. I don't count it at all. But if I well, were, right, I would count right. it as 20. Well, I would count it as 80. I don't count it at all either. Because by that, oh, we might have our thing we disagree on. Let's take off the gloves, Bracken. By that rationale, 40 meter all out burst sprints with walk back recovery would be aner would be aerobic because your heart rate doesn't get up. Yeah. Despite the fact that it's all out firing. And that's how strength training is. Your heart rate might not actually rise, but it's 100% effort to squat. And so if I counted it, I would count it as 20, but that's why I don't count it. I count only cardio in my 80-20 split. My strength training is its own separate entity that does not have any bearing on the rest of it. Well, yeah, I agree with that. But I don't agree in the fact that, <laughs> that okay, let's say I do an hour strength training session and I heavy squat and I heavy deadlift and I heavy bench press for the beach muscles. How long does a set of squats at five reps take me? 30 seconds at most. Mm -hmm. So do you only add up that 30 seconds of work? Even though I worked out and I was at the gym for an hour, I really only did like 10 minutes of work at most in that hour and the rest was rest period. So if you're factoring in the percentage, it's not that much work. You understand what I'm saying? You spent an hour at the gym, but you only worked. No, I understand what you're minutes. saying. The book is 80-20 running. Correct. 80-20 weight room. But I don't think, correct, but it doesn't, it doesn't contribute to the quality effort, I believe. In my opinion, it doesn't contribute to anything. In my opinion, it doesn't contribute to the aerobic either. Doesn't contribute to anything. No. But it's let's separate entity. Right. So it doesn't factor in. No. I keep I keep total training volume of time and then I keep my running. My running is 80-20. My training is its own extra thing and it combines for my volume. And I don't even count my strength training in any hours, any fashion. It's only time where my heart rate's elevated will I count any sort of how much time did I put in this week. My strength training is like a by the way. Okay. I don't track it because so much of it is rest that I just think it's, I don't know, doesn't count the same. However, if this gentleman or woman is talking about Metcon work, that might be a little bit of a different story. How do you fall on that? If it does not contain any cardio aspect to it, and that's tricky. So I should say this, if I'm not locomoting during it, if I'm not on a rower, on a bike, running, walking lunges, if I'm not moving my body back and forth in a way that is cardio based, I don't count it. So if it's like, um, if I was doing Murph reps, but without the run, you know, just body weight squats, push ups, and pull ups, that would not count no matter how hard I hit it, I don't count it as 80 20. If I do Murph with the run on either end, now that's a quality day. Yeah. I don't count anything where weights are in my hands towards anything. And if I do, I'm just saying it's part of my, like, I don't consider it quality. I'm not adding anything to my 20% when weights are in my hands and weights are the predominant um, modality of that workout. Now, if I'm on the assault bike and I'm going 30 calories hard 
into thrusters, back into 30 calories hard, into burpees, and I'm spending the majority of my time in an aerobic or anaerobic heart rate state on a piece of cardio equipment or a run, even though weights are involved, that counts. But if I'm just in the weight room, don't even, I don't even acknowledge it. I make a small note in my running log that says strength work, quick description, but I don't, I don't even keep track of the time. I don't start my watch. I don't I don't count it. Okay. The only place that gets tricky is when I would do, let's say an upper or lower body lift followed by a Metcon. And if that Metcon has running in it. So I might do a 40 minute lift followed by Helen, you know, some running and some kettlebell work. I will count that finisher as quality for the week, but I will not count the preceding strength work just like yourself. Yeah. I think if weights are in your hands, no matter how hard, no matter if you're doing 50 thrusters for time into 50 pull-ups for time into gosh, I might even say 50 burpees for time. Yeah. I don't even count burpees. I don't count burpees either unless they're infused in a run or cardio based workout. I would just keep it in its own category and do your other training accordingly, unless you're feeling overwhelmingly fatigued on a consistent basis where you need to start factoring it in or listening to your body. But I push it aside as well. I just don't, I just wanted to make, I don't count it as my 20 or my quality. Okay. I I guess 80%, I guess is where I'm going to put it if I did. All right. And then just to very briefly touch upon the, the cross training aspect, I count cross training as part of my 80, 20. If I'm aerobic on the bike or the rower or hiking, it's 80. And if I'm anaerobic, it's 20. And I count it because it matters. 100% it matters. Yep. I agree with that. Sweet. All right. This is something that comes up a lot. Loved the gear episode. Would love to hear a tech episode. We're not going to do a whole episode. But if you do, please, please, please explain the Garmin training status. Mine can't make its mind if I'm being productive, unproductive, peaking, etc. I will do a quick hot take on Garmin training status. I'll sum it up in one word. Trash. It is just not accurate. It's nice to look at, but don't set your life by that training status. I agree with that. Here's the thing. I believe there is merit to what's happening here. Mm -hmm. On the training status, a couple of pointers for you on this. One, external heart rate monitor must be used. If you're relying on the wrist technology, waste of time. Two, Anytime you are doing OCR work, trail running, going for vert, the Garmin does not count that. The Garmin training status assumes you are running on flat, clean terrain with no interruption. So my Garmin has a trail mode. So I put on trail run, and then that does not count towards my training status on my Garmin. If I'm getting vert, if I'm turning, it only counts when I say I'm going for a run, and it assumes the run is on clean terrain. If I'm doing OCR work where I'm doing burpees and, and other stuff and stopping and starting and I just click run on my Garmin, it thinks I'm running nine minute pace with a heart rate of 175. And of course that's unproductive. So anytime that I do any running other than clean running, I set it to trail run. And then it does not count that data towards your training status. It, it, it accounts the volume, but not any metrics of like your pacing, your heart rate, anything. So that is a trick that has helped me dial in on my Garmin is just go to trail run if you're not running on flat, clean terrain, and it will not dock you for any variance in your training. Again, Garmin assumes in that training status, you're running on zero gain or loss on flat terrain. So anytime you're not, go to trail run, and it will not count that towards your status. It'll still count your volume, your yep. time, but it won't 
punish you, say you didn't do any work because you're running 10 minute pace. Correct. And it doesn't count treadmill work either. If you say treadmill run, it does not count that towards your status as well. So the problem with that is, is a lot of your recovery efforts are on flat terrain. And mm-hmm. so you're just running slow and easy all the time, which is how I do it. So my status is always still a little funky. But the big problem with that is no external heart rate monitor and then doing undulating work on hills or compromise work. And then it just thinks you're slow with a high heart rate and what what's going on there. So it's right. always going to say you're unproductive. And it can only know heart rate. It can't know impact. It doesn't know that 10,000 feet of descent hurts you more than 10,000 feet of climbing. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't know the impact on your muscles. It only knows your cardiac impact of a workout. Correct. And if you're climbing at three miles an hour up a steep grade, but your heart rate's at 180, it's going to think that you're completely deconditioned and you're going to get an unproductive status. And that's why you need to switch it over to trail run. But not all models do that. Just the more advanced ones. We can move on. People have liked the VJ Jones episode, the cadence work. Yep. Even like Glenn, for example, Glenn is probably has 30 Spartan podiums in his life. Glenn race. He Mm -hmm. commented, tagged us in a message that he worked on a higher cadence on his treadmill challenge recently. And did you see what he got? Yeah. He smoked it. Uh, 173 or 175 on a Nordic track. World-class. On a Nordic now, my track? Only say, my only hope there is that because it's an older, it was an X7, that its calibration is different than our X11 and your X3000 that you have. That's like Spartan World Championship winner level climbing. Because I would say that 173 on a Nordic track, if it's calibrated the same as ours, is worth like 185 or so on on a standard treadmill. I can't fathom that. He ran at like seven miles an hour. Yeah. Seven and a half. Yeah. So has he got a question? He doesn't, but along those lines, we got a lot of people asking about cadence. And this one is I typically run at 180 plus. I'm a short female, five foot, and I have short legs. I'm curious how much of that has to do with height and gender, the cadence. Is it worthwhile for me to focus on reducing my cadence? Mm. Um, according to people who know more than I do about this, because I am not an expert, say that regardless as to your build, your cadence should be roughly optimally still 180, give or take, as far as I understand it. Do you understand it the same way? That's how I understand it. And I don't believe it. Yeah. I just don't. I I just, uh, I feel like on recovery runs, no matter how short you are or how long your legs are, it's still really easy to run slower than 180 strides per minute. I think your top end strides per minute is probably going to be higher. Like your rev limiter is going to be set higher on your cadence if you are shorter with shorter legs, but are still a pretty fast runner, you might see 190 or 200 where others could stay at 180. But I still think focusing on 180 on recovery work still would be a challenge for somebody no matter their stature. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about this mechanically. If one person's 5'2 and one is 6'2 and they're both turning over at the exact same cadence, one of them is doing a substantially different amount of work. Well, that's kind of the case no matter, like there's discrepancy in leg length and... Right, but if we both run 180 at different heights, we are covering different amounts of distance on each stride. Technically, technically you wouldn't, would you be? If you're running the same pace together? I'm not saying the same pace, I'm saying the same cadence. Yeah. To run the same pace at the same cadence will take much different effort level. So mm-hmm. my response is that, yeah, you should shoot for around the 180 range, but then you also need to play with it. You need to do some days where you try running at 175, 180, 185, 190, 170, and, and see what the corresponding exertion point is for you. If you're five foot with short legs, running 180 is going to be a lot easier than someone who's 6'5 with long legs. 
Mm -hmm. If you watch any track race or road race, there are always a few extremely short athletes who are running a much, much higher cadence than everyone else's. And it's because they have to, to keep up and because it costs them less to move shorter limbs. Whereas the people who are much taller, it costs them more, but they get to make up with it with stride length. And so there is variation, just like there's variation in heart rate in body temperature, IQ, everything. People do, um, people do look at stature leg length as like a potential detriment or a blessing. And really, just as you had mentioned, I think that's a very good point you make. Like it is more costly for a taller athlete with longer legs per stride than it is for a shorter athlete with shorter legs per stride. So it can't be like, I got these short little legs. I have no hope or I have no potential. If you actually look even at the world-class level and you watch like an Olympic finals, there's going to be one or two 1500 meter runner guys in there with like, they don't even quite look proportionate compared to some of the long lengthy strides, but they're still doing it. And they're still running fast because each stride, yes, it looks like they're working harder and maybe they are slightly, but it is less costly per stride. And so it could be looked at an advantage in the endurance world in it, in a regard. Yeah. So anyways, form optimization is what's key here. And you got to play around with it a little bit to find out what your optimal form is. And I would just like to touch on cadence. I think cadence is so much more important on your recovery and steady days than it is on your high quality days. Cause a lot of times you hit 180 or above when you're doing short, fast work and mm-hmm. you're surpassing the 180. Start with your steady recovery runs and just seeing where you're at and dial in there first before you start worrying about where your cadence is at at faster tempos. Yeah, yeah, that's good. At faster tempos, it's more important to try to find the easiest you can run at a pace. Yes. Where on your easy days, it's time to force feed the faster cadence I can run. So on my easy days, I focus on cadence. On my hard days, I focus on eliminating effort. If I'm running with my treadmill at five flat pace or six flat or seven flat, whatever it is, I'm trying to hit the easiest output of energy I can possibly do. Correct. So you should look at them differently. Correct. Yeah, we're on the same page there. Yeah. Next question. Mark Falcone. I got one. Um, I don't know if you screenshot this one as well because this came through the running public. I was just having this discussion after a track workout training for a mile time trial. How would you calculate your readiness for a goal mile pace on your interval days? For example, if my goal PR mile is 449, if I run 12 by 400 meters at my mile goal pace, is that a good indicator of being close or at the correct running capacity of the goal mile? Or uh, is there any other intervals you would do leading up to a time trial that would give a good indication of the ability to hit the goal time? Or is there no good correlation to results of a workout versus the mile time trial? Not sure that was worded very well, but I'll go with it. Curious as to your thoughts. That's one of the most common questions you find all over the internet is predict my blank based off blank. Does this workout predict me for this? Or what's the best workout predictor for this? I don't necessarily believe in blanket statement predictor workouts. I think that the longer you train or the longer someone coaches you, the more you can dial in your personal predictor workout. But fast twitch and slow twitch athletes respond differently to different workouts. I can fake a 12 by 400 workout much, much better than I can fake, let's say, a 4 by 800 workout. And so I believe in time trial predictors. Run a 1,000 will predict your mile, and you can run a 1,000 pretty often in training or run a a 1,200 at goal pace in training, see if you can do that. That will tell everyone what they can do, whereas predicting one workout, 
with to a race. I just it's it's hard to slap it across the entire community. So he said so his last part was like, is it irrelevant or is it still pertinent? And I think the question that people really want to know is my goal is to run a he says 449 mile. Okay, what is that roughly? I don't know, 73 seconds per lap, 72 and change. And change. 72 and change. So should his goal, like if he can go out and run 72 and change for 12 by 400 meters, does that indicate to him that he's ready or not? His rest. At 60 seconds. And if if your goal, let's just, let's just keep it simple, it's a five minute mile. What should you be trying to hit in training to know if that's even a realistic goal? Because mm-hmm. people wonder. So there is there is the question. And, and a workout I did in college was a race predictor for the mile in particular. And it was one I talked about. It was three by three by 400 meters. We had 60 seconds rest, 60 seconds rest, three minutes rest times three. And typically what we could hold for that effort was close to our predicted mile projection for racing coming up. So three by three by 400 meters, 60 seconds rest, and then, and then three minutes rest every third rep. Um, we took our slowest four reps, mm. and that seemed to be the ticket. Um, but that was as close as I could get. I don't know. It's really, it's really mysterious. It is. Now, I would look at his workout and say 12 by 400 with 60 seconds rest. You could keep that for a mile and a half or two miles, assuming Maybe. you have a great aerobic foundation and years of racing. But if you're a super fast twitch athlete, maybe you can keep that for one mile. So I think it's very tricky. You you had a great workout simulator and you had a systematic approach to training. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'd rather have someone go out, try to run 800 or 1,000 meters at mile pace, recover three minutes, and then hit four by 400 at mile pace. If you can do you know, both parts of that, yeah, I think you're ready. You know what would tell me the most, honestly, I think is if you ran 800 meters, took 60 seconds rest, ran another 800 meters. Yep. In training, in training, you can't fake that with only a minute rest. And on race day, you dig and you just sustain. I think even if you did two by eight hundred meters with thirty seconds to sixty seconds rest, so whatever it would, but whatever you hit there would be a pre. I bet you you get within five seconds of that. I believe so. Uh huh. Anything else, Dad? Just that the closer you get to predicting a race, that I, I should say that if you really want to predict a race pace off workouts best way to do it is to have a really short recovery. Yep. When people are saying I'm doing five by a mile with three minutes recovery to train for a 5k, that's a great workout. But I can't say that a novice can do that workout and predict their time because three minutes is so much recovery. Correct. It can get you better at a 5k, but it can't predict your 5k. I agree. You're up. I am up. How to train for 10,000 feet of descent in a race without mountains. Is there any context to that? I know the context for this one because I know the person who sent it. Who is this person? It's Ross Weimer. He's the guy I've been training with recently. He's a guy I taught with in my first three years of teaching. He was a all-state running back in high school, played D1 footballs at running back, blew out his ACL, and this year decided to lose weight and sign up for an ultra. Good for him. Well, Ross, you said? Ross. Ross, biggest hill I got access to is 145 feet of gain and loss. Within an hour of my house, I've trained for most all of my stuff, descending only on that. So repeats, maybe I'll go steady or easy up and then hammer down and over and over and over again. I bet you you have a hill of some capacity. The steeper, the better. 
for that impact, not a gradual five or 10% hill. That's not going to do the job, not for OCR or steep trail races. So you're going to have to do repeats, man. If we're talking running only, we can get to Mm -hmm. strength as well or plyos as well, but that's my only advice. And it's worked for me. I can descend all right on a 145 foot ski hill and then going out and descending for 2000 meters in a row in a race. So, um, that's where I go. That's where I start. How about you? That's, that's where I start and finish. Really. You've got to spend time on the best hill that you have specifically did interval work and then just time on feet days where you're doing a long run up and down a hill. Yeah. Um, the other strength stuff, if you're going to look at the gym, I like like box, uh, box jump down squats, or maybe you start on a 24 inch box, you jump off of it and land into a squat, step back up, jump off of it, land into a squat, step back up or, um, work the eccentric phase of your loading. Like for example, do sets of 10 on the squat bar, but take 10 seconds on the way down slow eccentric loading it's not going to simulate downhill running don't get me wrong but it's going to get those muscle fibers used to being stretched and still taking load while doing so so i would recommend things like that but you can recreate impact in the gym by you know soft jump like plyometrics jump squats jump lunges things like that as well um but that's as close as you're going to get in my opinion i agree it's a tough order a tall order to to take on 10k of of descent over course of an ultra as a flatlander, but people do it all the time. Your hips, your core, your glutes, your quads have to be bulletproof. And if if you have access to a short hill and like you're like, yeah, I can descend it a bunch, but I got to go up every time to get there, which is kind of the case, then fine. Power hike up, keep the effort easy, get to the top, let it rip on the way down. Spend two hours doing that. No problem. And I think that that's a place where some people miss out on their downhill bulletproofing is that you have to work harder than race effort in training to take the pounding because you accumulate much more damage when you really rip up a hill. And then in a race, when you're hitting it at a controlled, comfortable, smooth over the course of an ultra, it's just less damaging. You've built up more tolerance. Mm -hmm. Or when people do the up and downhill workout, uh, if it's a steep hill, they're working so dang hard by the time they get to the top, just to summit that they really can't access what they need to access on the way down. So if you need a a descent like phase, then I would, you know, go easy up, hard down. Um, you're up, I guess. Uh, that was mine. That was, I'm up. All right. There's a series of three questions here. This is from Peter Giorfi. He's got the little dots above the eye. So I'm assuming Mm. he's overseas. I like that. Peter, it's very exciting. How often should you update or change your heart rate zones? I assume they change with age and improved fitness. Which are the official heart rate zones, if there are any? Do you recommend running based on pace or on heart rate? Does it depend on type of workout? Keep up the good work. Thanks, Peter. No official heart rate zones. Just yours. No official heart rate zones. We can ease. Yep, easy enough there. If I had to break them down, though, I would say I like the five zone approach. Zone one is like walking around. Mm Mm-hmm maybe maybe so 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 slow jogging it's like biking easy heart rate zone two would be what you would call easy and recovery work where you're just having a full-on conversation and you're never out of breath zone three i like to consider my high-end aerobic i'm still aerobic but it's approaching that upper limit upper limit of zone three is my cutoff between aerobic threshold and tipping over into anaerobic Mm -hmm. zone four for me is in my threshold zone and zone five is everything faster than threshold. Well, I think you can base things as far as updating or changing your heart rate zones. If you do have a smartwatch and you do have an external heart rate monitor, they're actually pretty good about updating your zones. Mm-hmm. If you end up doing some racing in it and some hard workouts in it, 
we, you know, with the technology, it updates those zones for you automatically and changes them as you go. So I found that my Garmin paired with my Wahoo Ticker Fit armband, pretty dang close, man. Like it's after years of training, it's not bad. So yeah. it should update that for you automatically. Your technology should. So there's that. Um, and he says, do you recommend running based on pace or heart rate? I always recommend running on heart rate for recovery days. And then if you want to go pace or heart rate on quality days, you can. Yeah. I just had this conversation with an athlete the other day. Yesterday, maybe? My, my week's blurring together. I've yeah, been a busy boy. But they were saying that they did not like the style of intervals they had been doing prior because they were basing them off heart rate, but they were only 20 to 30 and 45 seconds in length. And it kind of gets back to the Mark Botris conversation where if you're only doing 30 seconds at threshold pace and you get a little bit of recovery and go again, it takes so long into the workout before you actually see heart rate hit mm -hmm. the zone you want it to hit that your only option is to ignore heart rate and go off feel or ignore feel and run as hard as you can to get your heart rate into threshold zone in 30 or 45 seconds, which then you'll run less hard each interval after that in order to get it there. But that just, it's a strange way of doing it. And so that's why Kirk and I don't like using heart rate on intense interval work. Yeah. I like that data just to go through afterwards and see what your body gave you, but not in the moment. Anything under like, gosh, anything under five minutes in length for me, maybe three, but mostly five. Like I'm not even looking, even mile repeats. I'm not looking at my heart rate. Data. I, I look when I'm curious about what a feeling means. Like but I'm, I'm not gauging I'm, my effort off a of heart rate. No, I just check like, oh, this deep burn in my chest or this nausea feeling. I wonder what I'm, oh, 182. Okay. That's, it's, it's, it's a curiosity. It has no bearing on my workout. One thing I just wanted to touch on is you say, and I like this test that you give is, is if you can base your heart rate zones, if you're trying to figure them out on your own, if you do like a, a threshold test, Bracken likes the 30 minutes, basically, almost basically race effort, like run as hard as you can for 30 minutes, but take your heart rate average from the last 20 minutes of that 30 minutes. And that should be roughly your lactate threshold. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can get your lactate threshold number, then you can sort of formulate the rest of your zones based off of that in some capacity. And so I kind of like that, like simple test. I also really like the the aerobic threshold test that they do in uphill athlete. I've been using it with athletes of mine for a while now. You get 10% on a treadmill and you only breathe through your nose and you wear an external heart rate monitor and you run for eight to 10 minutes. So, so easy for the first five to eight. And then as soon as you actually start sweating, then, which is around eight to 10 minutes usually, then you start bumping up and you keep it at 10% the whole time and you bump up 0.1 to 0.2 miles per hour every two to three minutes. And then you hold for two to three and then bump up again, 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 until you reach the point where you think this is starting to become no longer sustainable to breathe only through my nose. You bump down 0.1 or 0.2 and hold for 15. And your average heart rate during that 15 is your aerobic threshold. Still breathing through your nose. The entire time. So that 15 minutes. For 15 minutes after you've already built up to about that range. I've done it myself three times, maybe four. I've had athletes do it. And it, the, the coolest part was I was pretty sure I knew what my aerobic threshold heart rate was. It got me within two beats of that. What is your, like 149? I thought it was 48. Now I'm 150. Okay. Uh, but I have a couple out in um, New Jersey and they had had VO2 max testing done. 
And so they had their zones and I had them do this test and one of them nailed it exactly and the other was within two beats. So huh. it gets you within a beat or three of what a very expensive lab test can tell you. Oh, interesting. You, because that's not painful. It's a little, there's discomfort because you're breathing through your nose, but right. you can't work hard. So because of that, you can repeat that every few weeks to check your zone. Hmm. I like that. I might try that. I didn't come up with it. Uphill Athlete. It's a great book. I have it. I just haven't read that part of it yet. It's good. Fire away. Fire away. This is from Matthew Kemp. Hope all is well. Thanks, Matt. I have a listener question for you. What advice would you give about massages in prehab and rehab? Are they as beneficial, better or worse than a foam roller or other type of device like that? So actually going in and seeing a, mas a masseuse. Well, make sure it's a good one. Make sure it's, you know, massages aren't generally enjoyable if they're serving a real purpose to your athletic performance. So make sure it's a sports massage, I would say. Make sure it's somebody who isn't afraid to really dig in there and can. I, I say that if you're one who skimps out on all that work because it's just a lot of work for you and you don't have, you can't just like devote the mental fortitude it takes to sit there and do it, then by all means, like massage would definitely be a good way to go. I think it's really good at trigger release if you get the right person to really open things up. But I don't know how sustainable is that. I mean, you should be getting those weekly if that's your really your rehab plan. Are you going to do that? But I don't have a strong opinion on it. I do know that I feel like garbage after a massage for a few days. Mm -hmm. And then I'll work back into getting some pep in my step. I don't necessarily feel that way from rolling. So there's probably something to that. But I don't have a strong opinion on that, to be honest. What about you? I don't either. I do know that I will not get one done later than Wednesday before a race. I yeah. do not do this very often, but that's my, I mean, maybe once a year, but I don't let it get too close to a big workout or a race. My take is there's two types of massages. There's the kind that feels good and it's good for you as an athlete because it just gets blood flow to that area. And then there's the kind that hurts or you're working on an area, whether it's active release or trigger point or whatever it is you're doing. And those are helpful as well, but more or less than a, a foam roller, they're different. Mm -hmm. Different purposes, but they're both beneficial to you. And they're both things that you can get by without if you're healthy. Have you ever had one of those, um, I don't know what it's called, like a Chinese foot massage where they stand on you? No. You know what I'm talking about? I had one once. Um, <laughs> it was this little 100-pound Asian woman. Maybe she was 895 pounds. She was light, very sweet. And you basically just get uh, on your stomach. And they don't really even oil you up much. And she, she takes her shoes. And she's got these bare feet. And they climb up on you. And she'll walk on you, like, just on her heels. Or just dig her toes in, like her big toe. Uh, it was the most miserable 90 minutes of my entire life. I've never been in so much pain. I thought this little harmless, innocent woman could never cause that sort of pain. And uh, I wanted it to be over five minutes in. So don't go that route if you're looking to relax. They always make it look so pleasant in movies. And it was so weird with someone's like, you could feel like calluses on the bottom of her feet digging into your, you know, knots. It was bizarre. That's the official next question. Banger. Here's the deal. This is a little past season, but we're going to address it anyways. Uh, I cut off the top of this question in my screenshot, but I assume this is talking about running in the heat. Dan Beowulf something. It says, Beowulf. Beowulf? You know, like you know, Nordic tale? Yes, like that. <laughs> I don't know that Nordic tale. So on recovery efforts, it sounds like his heart rate's always ending up too high with the heat. 
It happens even though he feels like he's barely working. Nowhere near ventilatory threshold. I could recite the Gettysburg Address at these efforts. Basically saying he's coherent and not working hard. Video or it didn't happen. Yeah, video or it didn't happen, Dan. Should I respect the heart rate and slow down even more to hit my target zones? Or do I reevaluate my heart rate zones in hot weather and accept that it will be high? C, he gives us an A, B, C, and D. C, use a more subjective measure like RPE when it's hot. Or D, follow some other advice smart fellows like you guys come up with. Thanks. Good question. Wish we would have got this question a month or two ago. I'd say there's two options. The first is to try slowing down even more. Well, I think what I understood, I cut off the top, and I got another question like this. I have an athlete who says he needs to slow to a walk, basically, to get his heart rate where he needs it, even on flat terrain. And that's an option. If... If it's like medically necessary, if you're, if it's dangerous to be working harder to that, but I would give a round of exceeding my heart rate zone. If I'm still below ventilatory threshold one. Yeah. I would try that. I would experiment with that. It is tricky because I don't want you to go out there and go into cardiac arrest, but if you're cognizant and coherent and breathing just fine, but your heart rate's just skipping around, you either get tested (laughs) for some sort of cardiac um, issue or you test it out for a little bit. Well, and he's talking about recover- recovery days more than anything. Yeah. Is that heart rate being too high? And yeah, I say slow down even more. Who cares how slow you're appearing to other people trotting down the street? People seem to get caught up in that. Otherwise, um, you talk about like this 10 beats a minute leeway at altitude or in heat. Mm-hmm. You should experiment with that. But if you notice that your quality days are then just all trash, yeah. then you have to go back to listening to your heart rate and slowing down on recovery days, no matter how painfully slow the pace is. But some people can get away with a little buffer. Yeah. Yeah. I give myself a 10 beat buffer and other people have to do the bike on those days. You know, yeah. it might be in your hottest months, you increase your, your cross training. And I'm okay with the RP system too. I really am. As long as you're in touch with it. I mean, and we're really not answering your question as I'm understanding now, but it's a personal choice is what I think you have to do. But what you really have to come back to is how are those quality days going? Whatever your approach is, if they're going well, you can keep doing what you're doing. If they're not reevaluate your approach. That's good. All right. Here's a, here's one I like because I love that people are trying to implement time trials. This mm-hmm. person wants to, this is Andy Avril's. Okay. Andy Avril. Uh, he wants to, I think he's a Wisconsin guy, wants to incorporate time trials and he wants to know, do I wait until I'm recovered? He's starting his off season, or should I wait until after my first base phase? And then second part, which three or four time trials would you recommend for an ultra runner? Would they vary from a shorter distance runner? Mm, so good. I'm going to work backwards in that. I think all runners should have a short and a long time trial. No matter if you're a miler or a ultra marathoner. Yeah. Because you got to work both ends of the spectrum. Okay. But I think everyone should have a sport-specific time trial. So I like mile and 5K for everybody or two mile and 10K or 1,000 meter and five mile, you know, something in that range. And then get sport-specific. A miler might do a 400 or 600 meter time trial. An ultra runner might have their 18 or 16 or 12 mile loop or their, their 10,000 vert day where they go up and down their local mountain, whatever it is. So I would have those three short and then moderate and then sports specific. Well, if people don't want to, you know, time trial all the time. Like if you had to filter through three time trials, every time you wanted to measure your fitness, that would be a lot. Sagram. You can Sagram, of course. I would, I would argue that if you're an ultra runner, I think you could, you could ditch the mile. 
For sure, you could, yeah. Like a 5K time trial and then like an hour max distance time trial or something like that. 5K would be short enough, yes. I yeah, I think so. something that is 20 minutes or less so that you can be sure you're not starting to air too much on the side of slow running and losing some wheels. But yeah, you're right. 5K, 5K is acceptable. If you're an ultra runner, we're talking 31 miles or more, that's, I think a 5K would cover the speed end. Yeah, I think so. And for what they're covering. But I mean, if you're racing, if you're racing an hour or less, I think the mile time trial is still very, very relevant for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he also asked like how to implement them or when to implement them. Yeah, so them. he's coming off of off season. He wants to know, do I start my base building with testing and then retest after? Or do I get into my base building, maybe even finish my aerobic base build and then time trial? Either. However, if you if your off season does entail like some running, like you're running still three to five days a week or whatever you're doing, I think you're going to be very glad to have that data, even if it's just from a confidence boosting standpoint. So I would always err on the side of time trialing earlier because you never regret a time trial and you never rec- regret that data. If some could push it back to the end of base phase, but some people also get kind of fit off of base phase. So mm-hmm. I would rec- I would recommend right away to my athletes. And I do. Usually anybody that starts a program is getting a time trial pretty soon in their program. What about you? I'm the same. I understand why someone might want to wait, but like you said, more is better for time trialing. It keeps you mentally engaged. And even if you just absolutely blow up in the first one, it just gives you a great feeling when you improve for the second one. Correct. So it's usually like you're, you know, you might be a little disappointed with that first time trial, but that's okay because then it just puffs your ego out the next time you time trial and it builds good momentum. So I like it for nothing other than that. And here's the thing. If you do it before base, you have to do it after. Yes, you do. Because if you're using them to give you training paces, it will not be relevant anymore after you've completed a block of training. So you have to retest anyways. You might as well get a baseline. Yep, I agree. What I really like is if you always do that, you can judge how much you've improved over your course of your season, where you know off-season to off-season, I got 10% better. And then base build to base build. Now my base build didn't impact me as much. I can probably shorten my base build next year. Mm-hmm. Or you get to the end of it and realize I, I got even faster off that. I might even do a longer base build than I did last year. So it's great data to have. That's an important thing to note. A lot of times when I time trial early, I surprise myself with how well the time trial sometimes went and realize like, hey, I can actually maintain a lot of my fitness in this in this sort of training pattern, which gives me confidence if I'm ever injured and need to slow my training down that I can still hold decent fitness. I've had that happen a number of times. So it's always like more data, the better, more time trialing, the better. And so I would encourage you to do it right away. I'm going to dive into our poll questions, which I only put out for like two hours and then I cut it off. We have six, 12, 18, 22 questions in our poll. More rapid fire them. Yeah, we'll do this quickly. Yeah, and I know you have some longer ones that need some time to get uh, to. No, I only have three left. Do you have any from Jack Bauer sitting in your queue? Nope. Don't forget about those. We I got yelled at by Jack Bauer on our uh, message yes, yesterday. He said he was going to message me right before we record, and I don't have a text from you, Jack Bauer. Jack, we'll get to maybe your questions at the end. <laughs> if we don't, he might write us off forever. Um, Spartan Smack 86 asks a great question. Okay. Spartan Smack 86 asks, how do we get some info on being coached from either of you guys? Well, 
reach out. Reach out. We perpetually say we are going to have this website finished and our coaching offerings laid out really nicely. And I'll tell you what, on my end, I've never been so busy with clients in the gym. It's insane. So my life has been nuts. And we just haven't been able to, and Bracken, you've been busy as heck on home projects and coaching and family. So like, we just haven't gotten together yet to finalize that. So the best way to reach out to us is either send out a phishing message on our Instagram running public page, and we will guide you the right direction. Or if you know who you want to coach with, just send us a message personally on Instagram or send us an email and we will start the conversation that way. Um, we still do not have a joint effort coaching um, program lined up. We will, but right now you just basically picking who you think can help you more or who you relate to better and go in that direction. And it's funny because we, we definitely have our, <laughs> our, our, what would you call it? Our clientele, our, our audience, Kirk's audience is different from my audience. Totally. It's the, somebody will message us and say, I would love to get coached by you, but I don't care by who, or how do we, what do we decide? And they say, pick who you want. And it's a very certain type of person that picks me or picks you. Of everyone we've ever had contact us, there's probably been maybe two or three who truly didn't care. Most have a very definite idea of why they would be better served by one of us. If you want to know our system, guys, we basically, when somebody reaches out and doesn't care, it's a roll of the dice as to who you're going to get. We have our own little like, well, is it you or me? We'll just kind of roll the dice and figure it out. Um, so you could also just roll the dice and destiny will fall where it lies and tell us, you know, we don't even look at your needs yet necessarily. We just say, all right, pick a number. Simple as that. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. Direct your message to the person you want. And yeah. Kirk and I have a very good working relationship. We don't care who you choose. We just want you to get good coaching. Yeah. I have not even had hurt feelings when they picked you and you haven't when they picked me, have you? No. Nope. Yeah. We support each other over here at the running public. That's right. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah. All right. I You're like up. That. I mean, colloquialisms, Kirk. That's nice. Oh, I'm glad I'm asking you this and not you asking me. Breathing cadence during running. I used to always breathe 2-2, two, two, two steps in, two steps out, but was told that that could lead to imbalances, always starting on the same foot. I now do 3-2 pretty religiously, sometimes switching to 4-3 for really slow runs or 2-1 if I'm working really hard. What are your thoughts on metering your breathing? Three, two, one, four, one. We so talking we have three, two. So four strides per minute, four strides per breath. Yep, three, three breaths in, two out, four in, three out, or two in, one out, versus just two in, two out. Mm, I'm still a little lost, to be honest with you. When you say like three in, two out. So three steps to take your breath in. So. Oh, like holding. I got it. Not holding, but just here, here. Yeah, I get you. The got it. The yeah, I get it. The cadence of your your breathing rhythm. Have you ever thought about your cadence while you run? First of all, I believe if you're thinking about it, you're thinking far too much. It should be such a natural thing that occurs. And if it's not, like I I encourage you to try to get out of your own head. Mm -hmm. For starters, um. The one thing with breathing that I do notice is that when you're really working hard and your respiratory rate goes up, sometimes that shallow breathing can stop a full exchange of oxygen. So slowing it down, getting a huge breath, and then making sure you're forcefully blowing it all out to reset and then go back into your higher cadence breathing is important. So slowing down and getting those like gulps of air and then pushing it all out once in a while during a race or during a hard effort, that I definitely am a proponent of. 
But as far as worrying about it on the other situations, I just, I just don't. I have never once in my life had to worry about my breathing cadence, whether I'm fortunate or whether there's not much to it. I'm not sure what it is. I know there are people who have sought out breathing specialists to help get rid of side cramps and uh, increase performance. And I don't know if you lump that in with snake oil or if you lump that in like a sports psychologist where it certainly helps lots of people and other people never find the need for it. So I, I have no basis for this other than I'm going to echo what Kirk said. I was just talking to Ross about this on our last workout. From time to time, you'll hear me go in the middle of a race or a workout or even like a high-end aerobic mm-hmm. run just to get out a full exhalation, get, get it all out, and then it brings another good one back in with it and make sure that you stay on top of it. That's about as far as I get into it. This isn't exact science, but when you start breathing quickly, you just start to exchange the oxygen in the top part of your lungs, and you never really fully exchange what's in the bottom lobes, like way down in there. And that's just causing a lesser input of new oxygen if you just got kind of stagnant carbon dioxide filled oxygen never being exhaled through the bottom portion of your lobe. So that big exhale bracket is talking about to really push the air out is actually probably more important than getting those big deep breaths in at times. First, push that air out, then breathe that back in. And you're going to find like 10, 15 seconds later, things are going to calm back down. You'll notice like with your breathing, I notice that, you know, pretty regularly when I'm starting to go like anaerobic. Another thing I struggle with vocal cord dysfunction. Most people believe they have asthma when they have a hard time breathing, they lock up in their throat, they hit cold water and they go (gasps) like that. That is not asthma. What that is, is called vocal cord dysfunction. And what that is, it's a spasm of your vocal cord. And then that airway restricts it kind of like, you know, uh, the straw gets kind of put in a noose. And so the best way I worked with a vocal cord specialist on this, and it helped a ton is to take really short, aggressive sniffs, like a, like a quick sniff in that opens up your vocal cord in your throat. So if you do have issues with that, like getting stuck in your throat, a quick sniff as such really strong will reopen that back up and help it relax. So I know that's a little off topic, but it's something that's helped me greatly, especially after jumping in a cold dunk wall, the Tahoe swim quick sniffs in, open that back up and keeps it there. I don't know if you knew that, but it's pretty common. I did not know that Kirk. I learned something today. Good. Vocal cord dysfunction. Just a spasm of your vocal cord, just like a side cramp is a spasm of your diaphragm. Uh, Similar concept. Look at that. Look at that. You up? I'm up. All right, equipment question. Tried your recommendation for the Skecher Razors 3, but they were too tight for me. Got to size them up. Yep, usually you have to go up a half size, but this person says, they. this is Joe Gates. Joe says, I need something with more pop than my Hoka Clifton 6s for time trial days. If the Hoka Clifton 6s fit you, then you don't need a super wide foot, I wouldn't say. And Hoka has some pretty, if you want to stay in that lineup, they have their Rincon, Rincon. It's like the Clifton, but lighter and a bit snappier. Mm -hmm. And it feels awesome. And I love it. And Hoka also has some racing flats. They have the Tracer. They have the Carbon Rocket, which I believe is on sale right now at Running Warehouse. Uh, A different guy I'm coaching just bought a pair, I think for like 79 or 89 bucks. And they're Mm -hmm. a carbon fiber plate, um, like three mil drop racer. If you like the Hoka line, stick with it. Then just get the lighter version. Yeah. I yeah. Those would, be, those would be the three I would explore on that. Otherwise, man, there are so many racing flat options. The Skechers are a narrow brand. Um, Adidas is a little bit less narrow. The Adios, they have the... I like the Adios. 
Adios is really good. They came out with the SL20, I believe, and one other one. Uh, again, go on Running Warehouse and check through all their lighter options. They break them down by weight, and you can even put in if you want a narrow or normal or wide fit. And I think I threw this out in our last podcast, but Running Warehouse sends you back with free return shipping labels. Yep. So experiment, buy a few, or buy if you're not sure on sizing, because dang, it's so hard to size those, especially those racing flats. Just get a couple of sizes, and then I know it's a pain to send them back, but like it's free. And I just did it. If you like, so I'd recommend that. Uh, Luke Jones, 56, 1.5 mile test for the military, beginner, but played sports, anaerobic focus slash aerobic build, question mark. That's what he wants to know. Basically, it sounds like he's got a test coming up. He's a beginner, has an athletic background and wants to know what to focus his run work on, anaerobic or aerobic. Here's my general advice for anyone who's prepping for an event. If you have time on your hands, do an aerobic build and then sharpen it with anaerobic work. If you are crunch for time, you hit as many interval sessions as you can hit, and then you fully recover before the, the test and you do it. Bang for your buck, you're not going to get better than anaerobic interval sessions. I agree. In a short window, for sure. Yep. I do see played sports. I usually think that means ball sports or lateral plane versus mm-hmm. you know unilinear. So... I would say maybe he's got a little bit of quick turnover. So I would maybe like longer intervals, like hit, like start with mile repeats, go to 800s, go to quarter miles, do something where, I don't know, maybe a mix just cause I'm maybe yeah, got some do two per week. Yeah. I don't know how, what your time, time frame is, but if you got, if you got three months, do some tempo and threshold work for like six weeks and then start getting into some fast stuff on the track and you're going to be ready. Absolutely. I'm out of questions over here, Kirk. So you're, you're going to have to take the wheel. All right, Clydesdale OCR. I like this one. This one, I'm going to direct right at you and you'll see why. Things for heavier runners to consider, in parentheses. I love car analogies, but some of us are Mack trucks. (laughs) That's Clydesdale OCR. So things for heavier runners to consider, that vague. Uh, First is that everything is magnified the heavier you are. Impact force, stress on joints, ligaments. Um, Basically, the more you weigh, the better you have to be at every little piece in terms of landing underneath yourself, having a good cadence that allows you to impact the ground with the least amount of of, uh, of damage. You need to be able to have shoes that cushion and support you. Uh, you just can't play around with things. A 120-pound runner gets away with things that a 220-pound runner doesn't. So it's not inherently bad. You just have to be better and on top of everything. So cadence, foot plant, shoe choice, warm-up, mobility, stretching, rehab, prehab matter more the more you beat up your body. And the more you weigh, the more you beat up your body. Yeah, two things I want to touch on with that. One, uphill is key for somebody Ooh, like you. I'm embarrassed yeah. I didn't even think about saying uphill, Kirk. Uh, you're, you're a candidate. No, that's okay. I'll, I'll get your slack here. Uphill, I, I would be non-averse to using the treadmill or incline trainer to do a lot of your volume. Uphill work is going to save that pounding on your body. So don't, we like to, you know, kind of bash on people who run the treadmill more than go outside. You'd be a candidate where I'd steer that way at incline 10, 12, 15% or above, because I think it's going to create longevity for you, allow you to implement more volume without the overuse injuries. And then the other thing is if you follow culture, distance running culture, OCR culture, the top athletes in particular, I love my VJ shoes. Do I think you should be running them every day? I don't. And so you're seeing what these top end athletes are doing who maybe weigh half of what you do. And then you're going out and buying a pair of VJ shoes and training in them every day. 
and then you wonder why you feel like shit. You can't be doing what the pros are doing. You got to basically stay in your own lane there. Do I think you should buy your VJ shoes for racing? Heck yeah, get those babies on. But for the bulkier training and things like that, you almost need to ignore what the top end pros are doing and put more substance on your feet on a regular basis, except for racing circumstances. That goes a really, really, really long ways. Those are the two things I want to touch on. Well said. And Kirk and I, we don't we don't train every day in our VJs. We get mm -hmm. them free and we don't run in them every day. We use them for our fast days, for our muddy days, and for our races. I run yep. in my Hoka's, who I have no sponsorship with, on my recovery and easy days because I am what you would consider a heavier runner in terms of a high end, what, what you would look at at the top of a mm -hmm. sport. I weigh 20 to 30 pounds more than what I should weigh if I were an, a, a high Olympic level runner. And so I qualify for more cushioning. So do I. Yep. Same deal. Yeah. All right. Next one, Aaron a, a Ron, Aaron, JLM. Advice for people thinking about open slash non-competitor to age group OCRs. We've covered this one a good bit in other episodes. Uh, a, a Ron just probably has not heard this. Um, my first advice to you is one, it's okay if you believe your fitness is somewhat good. Go just give it a try. There's no harm in jumping from open to age group. I think you need to know you're ready for elite. If you're jumping from mm -hmm. age group to elite, that's a different story. And then the other thing is go look at the last race you did and compare your times to those in the age group and see if you're in the mix. If you're in the mix, go for it. If you are one of the last few people in age group, maybe another open race or two before you jump in. That's all the advice I have there. There's nothing to add to that. Okay, cool. Colin Lee, OCR, low aerobic exercise suggestion. In parentheses, apparently I'm low according to Garmin, in parentheses. So low aerobic exercise suggestion. That's all I'm reading here. I don't know. Is Garmin saying that he his aerobic capacity is low? Not sure. If so, do more of it. <laughs> That's it's fair. Do more of it. And maybe he's asking specifics, maybe other than running. Yeah, in the paradigm of, of non-impact cardio, uh, front back motions like elliptical or pool running or sled dragging or uphill hiking are best. And then you get to biking. And then after that, everything is kind of equal playing field of helps your heart, doesn't help your running. Yeah. Maybe he's maybe he's doing too much high end work and not enough low end work and can't like get that in running because running just yep. is one of those guys with the heart rate's high. Then get yourself um, a copy of eighty twenty running. Yeah, that book. And the bike is king. It's really tough to get your heart rate up on the bike if you go out and cruise on it. I find that's a, a really good way to keep your heart rate low, uh, put in good volume. But you got to work really hard mentally on the bike to get that heart rate up. Yes. V.A.A. V.A.A. Is drug testing in OCR as rigorous as others? No. Drug testing in OCR is a scheduled IQ test. You know that you are going to get tested if you make a podium or go top 10, you might get tested. And even at might. World only, really. At Worlds. At Spartan Worlds and OCR World Championships. And that's all I know of. I have not heard of a single out-of-competition test. Spartan uh, let some rumors fly before some National Series races two years ago. I think just to scare people because they heard some rumors going around. And they so did They did test after some National Series races. They did. Okay. They did a few tests, or at least after West Virginia. I... Would not be surprised that if an athlete came back positive, it would not even be released. That they might address it with that athlete because there isn't an actual, actual in-place punishment system for that. It would... They'd make one. they make a lot of rules last minute. So anyways, you know when it's coming. It's very infrequent. People would be fools or very unlucky if they got caught. 
Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going to leave it. Yeah, uh, the answer is no. The testing in OCR is is a bit of a joke still, and I, the money's not really there. So I understand. I mean, it's an expensive thing to have a nurse or physician or doctor come and have the vials tested. Like it's costing Spartan a little bit of money, and I'm guessing they're going to be watching their pennies again after this year's racing season. So I don't see that changing. Next question, Spatty1780. Fellow Whitewater alum here. Wish we knew the name. I could dive into her profile. Um, What about your thoughts on barefoot style shoes running? I'm not inherently a fan of them, but I guess to some extent I use some barefoot style shoes on my speed days. And I've done barefoot strides and even barefoot easy 20 to 30 minute jogs on grass in the past to help strengthen areas of my body. So I'm not inherently for or against it. I guess I don't love it. But again, it's kind of like cadence or heart rate or anything else. If it works for you, it works for you. You just have to be super, super careful about it. Yeah. When you implement barefoot style or zero drop shoes like ultras, you need to go slowly, like add them to mm-hmm. one recovery run a week for a couple of weeks, then maybe two a week. Uh, don't jump all the way in because it is notorious for foot issues, metatarsal issues when you go right to barefoot or minimalist style or zero drop shoes. So go ahead, experiment. Some people love them, but you got to start slow. And, and I don't, we always say, we always say don't do what you see other people are doing just because they're good. But I also think if you look to the pro training groups and big brands and big name athletes who have the ability to be paid to wear whatever they want, you can see trends that you do or don't want to do. And you really don't see anyone. I think uh, at the Olympic trials, there were three or four out of several hundred athletes who wore ultras. Mm -hmm. I think that at the Olympics, you won't see a single athlete wearing vivo barefoot shoes or or five finger so it's it's not a it's not a hard and fast rule that you can't do anything that they don't do but it hasn't been proven to be beneficial yet well and and the return you get from the ground in a barefoot shoe versus a shoe with a little bit of technology and cushion in it like you're actually not getting as much return force or pushback from that foot strike every every stride as well you're making really good clean contact with the ground but sometimes like that pep in your step can be a little tough to mm-hmm. find when you're in a zero drop or a minimalist shoe. And so it actually like the technology and shoes have come a long ways. Use them to your advantage. And, and that's an interesting point you bring up, not to get too far into this, but when you wear barefoot style shoes, you hit the ground almost perfectly because it mm-hmm. hurts if you don't. But the softest landing is not the most force generating landing. Mm-mm. And so in competition, if you're doing this for just health, sure dabble. If you're doing it for performance, a slightly less than optimum landing in terms of force absorption will give you the best power output. And that's where these shoes technology and cushion and and drop comes into place. It mitigates the damage you take while allowing you to propel with maximum force. Exactly. Yeah, our ancestors were barefoot, but they weren't breaking four minutes in the mile either. So there's there's an argument to both sides and it comes down to, do you want performance or are you exercising for health? Yeah, I agree. I got to tell you, Kirk, someone within a very close radius of us is smoking weed right now. <laughs> of your house? Yes. This, there's a, a group home for developmentally disabled individuals nearby. And one of their workers smokes weed every single day. And it's seeping into the recording studio right now. Good for Lucky you. 
So I don't know if you can order me some Grubhub or, or what. But. <laughs> There's something about weed in the air today because I had four hours of clients this morning and my first two clients, one solo and then one small group, both brought up smoking weed in our groups this morning. And I haven't, ta- I haven't had a conversation about marijuana in months. So I think today is some day we don't really know about this coming up. Um, my mom alone, meh, meh. Loan, 1865. <laughs> he sounded very good there. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to start butchering these names on purpose. Ever since Sandy Go Joey, we need to just... Sandy Go. <laughs> we need to butcher these names on purpose. Oh. Got two mobility tools, lax balls, foam rollers, massage guns. Any others? I don't use them. I use the lacrosse ball a lot on my feet. And I have a probably a hundred dollar massager that I use on my soleus and calves after every big workout when they get sore. And sometimes on my shoulders traps area where I carry some stress and tension and that's it. Yeah. I think, uh, I think mama outlined most of the, uh, the ones that I can think of. I think, I think a good mobility protocol for me, like actual movement of the body seems to go the furthest. I'll mess with the lacrosse balls once in a while. Uh, get my girlfriend to rub out some kinks. That's kind of nice actually as well. But uh, no, I don't use much of those either. I think that's a personal choice. Some yep. of the areas that you can throw weight on, like if you're trying to you know, work out your IT bands and stuff, or you can get on a foam roller, you can't replace that with other things sometimes. But um, no, I think you covered it. We, I got no miraculous go-to mobility. Tools. Do you know why? Because he listed them all, the, and it's all personal preference. There is no miraculous go-to tool. Ah, there's some vegetable pills I heard you could take. That's it's supposed to help, there. right? <laughs> um, Zach Overturf, this is an athlete of mine. Hey, Zach. Zach, I hope that your little foot issue has been getting better, brother. we got to touch base in a couple of days. Zach Overturf wants to know, if OCR never happened again, we kind of got a question like this a few times mm-hmm. ago. If OCR never happened again, what other modalities or events would you pursue and race it? I'd jump at some tries. Tries. And I'd box. Yeah, you had a taste of that up visiting Novakovic in Alaska, didn't you? Well, we have Rufus Sport over here that I've I've done a bit, and I loved training there. And I didn't do it for a long time, but I would, with my time and energy, I would go back and do some more MMA stuff. I just love it. It's it's It makes me feel good. I like those answers. And this is just OCR. I would probably just go back into road running and try to improve some lifetime PRs. But I'm really curious about adventure racing. I am probably known now somewhat a lover of the outdoors and getting out in the woods and getting lost and dirty and kind of figuring out what to do with yourself is very appealing to me. The sub, That misery of that, the weather, the elements, the duration appeals to me. I don't know if it would fit my skill set necessarily as an athlete, but uh, I might look into that if that is non OCR enough. I would do, I would jump in it in an adventure race with you or orienteering. Maybe we should look into that. I mean, I'm a woodsman, so we got a good start there. I'm a man. And that helps. So we got a subsistence hunt something out there too, still. That's on our game plan. Yes, 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 yes. Um, RR OCR. It's got two questions, okay? Mm-hmm. Opinion the biggest reason people leave or retire from OCR burnout, injury, etc. I like that. I think burnout for sure. You see it, whether whether it's uh, physical or just mental, like I, 
I traveled 27 times last year. I spent tens of thousands of dollars. My wife's ready for me to stop doing that. Or my husband says I need to be home more. Mm -hmm. I got a new job. I'm just, I can't keep this rate going anymore. Or you see the people who are like, you know, Spartan's not what it used to be. And the other brands went by the wayside. So uh, it's just not for me anymore. It's a combination of all. I think Spartan is a shiny object that people like to chase and they get their fill and they're not as excited about OCR Spartan anymore because they've been there, done that. And I agree, oh, I've been to that venue. The races aren't any harder than they used to be. And you don't see a lot of the top end guys going for like true, true, true performance leaving in my opinion. The top tier racers, we don't care if the course is easier in quotes. We don't care if things are standardized. We don't care if it's a short sandbag. Like we thrive off of pain and suffering and comparing ourselves to the top in the sport. And you don't see guys dip in and dip out very often there. It's true. Uh, age, it's, it is true. Um, the ones who are going for the experience seems to di- seem to dip out a little bit more often. Um, we do have a few that get out because of age. Age is the, you know, that's not going, like you, you can't beat father time. So yeah. people are retiring because of that. And usually it's because of injury in combo with age. I don't really, I don't really know, but I do know that people that get into this really commit, really drink the Kool-Aid and some do burn out and need to back off. I'm sure a number of you listening are almost relieved that this last season was canceled because it gave you a time to maybe be like a better husband or be there for your kids mm-hmm. or devote more to your job or spend less money. So burnouts are very real. And hopefully absence makes the heart grow fonder and people come back in droves next year. I agree. Did you ever, cause you hit the ground pretty hard with this. I've always been a balance racer. I think the most I've raced in a season is seven times, Okay, maybe eight. Um, but I know you hit it real hard in the beginning. Did you suffer from burnout? Yeah, for sure. My first year I did two because I started in fall. My next year I did maybe three. And okay. then the year after that, I probably did 13. And the year after that, probably 25 or 30. Okay. So how was that 25 or 30? It was awful. That was the year I quit my job. And I, the year before had made as much in race earnings as I had made teaching. So it made it real easy to leave teaching and go move out to Colorado and pursue this thing. And it became a chore instead of a love. Mm-hmm. And I tried, I went out to a race and I got beat and I broke even on the trip. So I raced the next weekend to try to make up for that. And I lost. I'm it's just like, it, it just rolled downhill in a bad way. And mm-hmm. I stopped liking it and I stopped being successful or as successful as I wanted to be. And then the next year I put it into balance and started rolling for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, and a lot of people sacrifice relationships, money, time to do all of this. They're balancing, they're leaving for the weekend, but then they got to get home and spend enough time with their kids during the week. And they're still trying to train in between and be a a good husband or a good wife. And then they end up burnt because they're trying to do too much. And these races are a big commitment to travel and race too. So it's a tough balance. Um, And I don't have a wife or kids. I have just an assumption based on conversations I've heard. Um, Next one from our OCR, he's got two. The most amazing athletic thing ever either of you have seen at a race and the most absurd WTF moment. So what's the most amazing athletic thing you've ever seen in or during a race? I've, uh, I don't know if I can say one. First of all, some of Aaron Newell's obstacle performances at OCR North Norams last year mm-hmm. were really, really impressive to watch. He was doing things that people would do at an open house the day before if they had a running start and three attempts. He was doing it in the middle of a race while fatigued. That was really, really impressive. Jan Yatsko hurtling the five foot walls was really impressive. And John Albin, the first year at OCR Worlds, was doing things 
casually that I just never seen people do before. Day two, there's a team race. He was running with Ryan Atkins um, as half of the relay team I was on. And he like fell behind on one part and then just kind of did, you know how like a sprinter will do that, like head down, bob your arms, mm-hmm. over-exaggerate your form and really stride out in front of yourself. He did mm-hmm. that for maybe 20 yards and made up ground really quickly. And I thought, oh, this guy's fast actually. And then they came to a couple walls in the woods and they're running uphill and someone like climbed up over it and he jumped it. He hurdled it while running uphill. And he did a couple things like that throughout the race where he just really casually did something that, that I thought, oh, this guy's a, he's a real athlete and he, it would be too costly for anyone else to do that energy wise. Ah, I like those. Um, as far as I would say the most amazing athletic thing, I got a couple that come to mind. One was this last year at Tahoe. We were making our first descent after the swim. I think I was in, I don't know, ninth or 10th. And again, I think I had like the sixth or seventh fastest descent in the field on that first descent. It was If you ran Tahoe, it was very technical, very rocky, very windy, snowy. It was really treacherous conditions. And Johnny Luna Lima went by me. It was the first time I experienced his descent in a way in which he didn't care if there was a boulder in his way. He didn't care if there was a rock in his way. It was almost like he didn't act nimble like a cat. He acted like a pit bull, pit bull plowing through, cutting off switchbacks on the corners, like plowing through stuff that I would never even think of stepping on. The guy was like, steel legs and ankles and i know he tapes them and i'm understanding maybe why now i there is no way if there was a gun to my head my life depended on it that i could have even come close to matching what he did down that mountain he passed me and was out of my sight within a minute and the stuff the 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 leave behind that people don't think about the rocks tumbling underneath his feet the the sound of him going down the mountain was absolutely incredible and I had one of the better the descents of the day, and I couldn't even hold a candle to it. Watching him on technical terrain was a sight that I don't know who can duplicate. Seeing somebody run fast downhill on clean terrain, which I've seen him do in like Big Bear, very, very impressive. This was another world. That guy, if he has a clean race and there's descending like that, I don't know who can beat him based on what I watch. Go back and look at the Strava segments or Jack Bauer put together segments from Tahoe that year. He's like two or three minutes faster than like anybody on that descent. And there's some good descenders in the field. So that was incredible. And you're right. Watching him maybe is the most phenomenal skill I've ever seen displayed in the sport of running. I truly think that he is one of the top three, if not the best descender in the world. Yeah. What I saw was, and the way his stride opened up, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was taking twice the amount of steps as he was as I'm navigating the terrain and he went by me like off trail in the rocks and his ankles didn't even so much as flex. They like pogo sticked off to the next one. I I can't describe it any better than that. Like it was a bowling ball going down a hill, Mm -hmm. a very smooth looking. Um, And then this is going to sound silly, but my first U S national series in Seattle in 2017, we had a double sandbag and a double sandbag ruined some of the field. And I had never seen a double. And I, I think I was in like, ninth or 10th at that point, holding on for dear life. I ended up finishing 17th. It was a disaster. But Isaiah Vidal went by me with the double sandbags like a prick. 
and hit me with the side of his elbow sticking out, holding a dumb a sandbag on each shoulder to the point it knocked my sandbag off of my shoulder. He purposely hit me. He could have went around me. He's an asshole. But um, <laughs> the rate in which he passed me was incredible. And the way he moved with those, he was running like seven minute pace with the sandbags. And he took like five less minutes than I did on the whole dang carry. So that was the other thing that really stuck out to me. Was he a prick the way he went by me? Yeah. But was it impressive? Yeah. Those That's are my funny. Two. You know, I have a story about that. Not, not about Isaiah, Isaiah Vidal ran by me on the first ascent in Tahoe two years ago, had plenty of room to pass me and chose to rub his shoulder and hit me with his fist in the back of my arm as I'm running when he could have went around me. No problem. He shouldered me there too, without reason. So we go can, ahead. We could do a whole episode of that stuff, but that's not actually what I'm going to do. Uh, there was a race. There's a battle frog race. And I don't know if it was Florida or Texas. And it was one of the first times they had done um, really long jerry can carries. And early in the race, I think Brian Gowiski, myself, and Josh Swanser were doing the jerry can carry. And we were doing it because we had seen the course map. And we had done a little extrapolation and realized that this was about a 1,000 meter farmer's carry, between 800 meters and 1,000. Those jerry cans weigh like 35 pounds apiece. I think they're 45, yeah. 45. And, and so that's a really long way to do a farmer's carry and we're maybe a mile into the race. So everyone's fresh and feeling good. And so we're running the three of us in a pack and dropping them every, I don't know, 40 to 50 meters, shake our hands out for just a second or two and pick them back up and going. And Isaiah came to this obstacle behind us and he plows past us and he goes, as he goes by, you know, he's doing the bowling ball thing, knocking into us when he didn't have to. And he goes, Looks like you should have been doing more deadlifts, runners. <laughs> and blows by. And we look at each other. Like we can't stop laughing because it was so obnoxious and we knew what was coming. And about 400 meters later, we all go past him as he's sitting there on the side, sitting on his jerry cans because his arms are blown out. And Josh Wanter <laughs> says something like, Good luck with your deadlifts, man. <laughs> and just keeps going. And I don't know, we probably beat him by 35 minutes that day because he made it. 400 or 500 meters into a jerry can carry that still had another half, oh, you know, 600 meters to go after that. We did not look at the map. But yeah, he, he admonished us for not de heavy deadlifting. <laughs> he really enjoys letting you know he's going by. I'll tell you what, I had two experiences there and I got, I got physical contact when not warranted both times. Next question. This one's for you, directly for you. Billy Heatherly says, manscaping, necessary before a long run or no? You can just put a period after necessary manscaping period necessary period there you <laughs> go do you need to add to that one no get it right get it tight move on yeah the less hair the less chaffage that's for sure um spartan adam i have just so the listeners know i have 10 questions left and i think we can get through these pretty quick so okay um spartan adam how how fast of a 5k did the various elites run at different levels this one comes up a lot too Top women are sub 18 for sure. And Nicole and a few of them might be close to sub 17. Yeah, well, but other than that and pace. So 17 minute, I think top in the sport could run that. Nell Rojas came in and did a little bit of, you know, running. She's definitely like a 16 flat 5K or run in the 1540s or something. What's 17 flat pace for people to understand? About 6, 5, 27 pace. Yeah, 530 would be 16, or wait, what would it be? 15, 16, 30, I'd be like 17, 20, 17, yeah, 10. 17, 10. So 530 pace is a 17, 10, and there's some women I think that can break that. Yeah. 
Yeah. What about the men? Uh, there are very few people making a podium at big races that can't run significantly under 16 minutes in a 5k. And the top guys are running under 15 minutes. If they were to go and train and try to run on a track faster. And some have done it like Woods, Botris have, have gone sub 15 in the last few years. Who in the sport do you think could go sub 15 within, if you said you got three months to go sub 15 in the sport, who do you think if you had to lump everybody together, I would say Woods. I would say Botris. I would say Rich Ryan. I would say Mark Gaudette. I would say Hobie Call still. Mm-hmm. Cody. Cody, if he was still in the sport. Cody Moat. VJ Jones, I think, would flirt with it. Mm-hmm. I, think I, I think I'd be, if I really focused on it, I think I might see 15, 20 if I'm lucky. Yeah, you, Kent, myself, would be around that mid to low 15s. Um, Atkins mm-hmm. would be close. You think Atkins could come close? Low 15s. Um, and then there's, we'd actually see a lot of guys who would do it that don't make podiums. Guys who are, would be considered maybe B-class Spartan racers, but are B-plus or A-minus runners. We'd see a lot yeah. of those. Yeah, that's true. And I think to qualify, this is just a blanket statement, but if you want to be a man running in the elite wave, even if you've pre-qualified through Spartan's you know qualifying process, I think elite wave, you must think sub-18 is a man. I would even vouch to say sub 17 in a national series race. Mm-hmm. And then for women, I would say sub 19 um, national series race. You want to be even 1830. And, and I, I think sub 20 is, is safe for an elite wave female. You see girls, you see girls making podiums at the regional races at 20 flat or 5k yeah. runners. Yeah. Um, cool. Lisa Crocker, 86. She sounds like a baby. She messaged you again. Uh, yeah, this time it wasn't a text, though. This was our Instagram poll. So, yeah. I didn't know she sent one. This will be interesting to hear. Will you ever do a guided run? Question mark, exclamation point. All right. We're going to put this one out to the to the public. Let's do it. I like her idea. She likes the Nike running app and Beachbody app and a couple others. And they all do guided runs where they guide you through a warm up and then they guide you through an interval session or a fart lick or a tempo run or something like that. Are you interested in running public guided workouts? Yeah, that's as simple as that. What that would mean was you would turn on our episode. We would probably release this as a separate series and it would guide you through your warm up. We'd probably just babble motivation in your ears and talk about what's going to happen as you're warming up give you time to stretch, say, pause the podcast and do this, get back to your workout intervals or whatever, guide you through that. And then maybe guide you through a cool down as well. It would be very, we'd be near the whole time, like a personal coach in a sense. Yeah. Or a training partner. But we're not going to be like giving, we're not going to, this would be like a one or two off, not like a, we're not going to give you 10 different workouts where we just, you know, are sultrally speaking in your ear. I might. You might. I like the idea. Let us know if you have an interest there. That's going to be a lot of work on our end. So we'd have to figure out some time bracket, but yes, we, we would. Do. Thanks, Lisa. Lisa, I do like that idea though. B Boggs 13. Boggs. That's Brent. What attributes do you like and not like to see from clients? Is this a client of yours? Uh, yes. Brent Boggs. I like to see enthusiasm like mm-hmm. for the journey, not just enthusiasm to get out there and smash yourself, but enthusiasm for appreciating the journey for appreciating each phase of training. And I like I like someone who will adhere to the program rather than branch out and do all their own separate things, but also ask questions and challenge me. That's fair. I like a good student who is good at communication. 
Um, I've always prided myself on being a great student. And in my opinion, you cannot be a great coach unless you know how to be a great student first. And so you have to start as the student. Can you follow direction? Can you push your biases aside and trust the process? Can you do what I suggest so we can fully understand that what I am assigning is going to get results that we're looking for versus if you cloud it up by mixing in your own workouts or going off plan, then we really don't know what's working. So a good student. And then communication. Some people I don't hear from at all. Um, I hate to say this as a coach, but I'll divulge. Like, is that easy money? Yeah, I write you a plan and then I never hear from you for a month and then I write you a new one. But the more I hear from my athletes, the more I invest in their success. And the more I, and the more I understand and then want to help you even better. So communication is super important. Fill me in on those workouts. Give me your workout log at the end of the week. That stuff is just super important, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I want honesty too. I want people to tell me when it's not working for them or when they're upset or when they need a change. There are there are times where I will give two different people on different sides of the coast the same block to start with. Mm-hmm. They have the same goal for the year. They can handle the same mileage. And I see like this works for both of you. And at the end of the year, one of those blocks will look exactly the same. And the other looks nothing like what we started with because we have had communication and honest feedback and we've made changes throughout the plan. And the other person got what they got on day one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's easier, but it almost it's uh, it's an uneasy feeling knowing that I don't really know what they're thinking. I'd rather know. So I have athletes who do not contact me very often. And I have athletes that we have a standing meeting every week or every other week. We have a Skype call face-to-face every week or every other week. And those are the athletes that I intimately know their training and how they're feeling at all times. And there are people out there that don't want to worry you. They don't want to impose upon you, but you don't worry about that with your accountant or your chef at a restaurant and you pay them for a service. You don't hesitate to tell them what you want. And that's what I want. That's what I hear more than anything is, I didn't want to bother you. So I'll get a check-in email and it will be like, yeah, my ankle flared up. I rolled it on Friday's recovery run. So I didn't know what to do on Saturday's long effort because I couldn't run. And I'll get this on a Sunday Mm check-in. And I'll say, why on earth did you not tell me this or shoot me a text or give me a call? We could come up with a plan. Now I say, I don't want to bother you. I want to be bothered. And I think you do too, because it's not being bothered. It's, you know, I'm invested and you're invested. And so just communication, like you, that's the same, yeah. comes back to the same thing. And then you get more out of your training. And it's the beauty of texts and emails. Like they're not bothersome. If my kids are sick or if the house is flooding, it's not like the phone is ringing off the hook and I have to go answer it. It's if I can get back to you in an hour, I will. And if it's two days, I will, but there's no interruption in life. No, text and email you can get to whenever is convenient for you. All right. Uh, he's got two more. I kind of like this one as well. Basically, if I can run a five-minute mile... Oh, wait. Yeah. Here's it's a two-parter. Ideally, what percentage of your mile time trial pace did you target as your 5K and 10K pace? That's basically what he's asking. So if you can run a mile in five minutes, which is what he's basically saying, what's reasonable for a 5K and a 10K? And if your best mile is six minutes or seven minutes or 10 minutes, you can still probably base what we're about to say off of this. I think as a miler, it is reasonable to hold 20 to 30 seconds per mile slower for a 5K. That's my starting point. Do you believe that whether you're a four minute miler or an eight minute miler? No, I think if you're an eight minute miler, that gap widens. Okay. But as a blanket statement, I think you can hold 20 to 30 seconds per mile for a 5K based off your mile time trial. What do you believe? Yeah, I put it right at 30. 
and I think it's plus minus 10 to 15 based on are you a fast switch or slow twitch and how well developed is your aerobic capacity. There are mm -hmm. times in my life I can run 420 in the mile, but I can't keep five minute pace for a 5k. And there's times I can run 435 in the mile, but I can keep 455 pace in a 5k, depending on what kind of training I've been doing. So yeah, I put it right at that 30 second mark. Mm -hmm. And then it does tend to grow a little bit as you become a six minute miler or seven. And then when you get to like 738, it kind of shrinks back again. Yeah, it's an interesting bell curve, isn't it? Yeah, like muscular and cardiovascularly, you could run faster, it's just holding you back, but you can hold a slightly slower pace for longer. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think is like an A goal, depending on how you look at this. Like I think 20 to 30 seconds per mile would be like an A target goal for a time mm -hmm. trial. And then if you're looking at a 10K, I'm only slowing it down another five to 10 seconds per mile from that. Yeah, it's and really probably. interesting. Mm, it's not a ton at when you go from 3.1 to 6.2. Um, when do you think Spartan will return? Asks Corey Edwards one. I'm saying February, March. Thing that's thrown a kink in my opinion there is obviously we've seen Savage and Conquer the Gauntlet putting on races uh, recently with seeming success and not a lot of blowback. Spartan's a different monster. So, and I don't know what's going to happen with state regulations. Everybody seems to be lightening them instead of tightening them, no matter the circumstances. So it could be early as March, but it could. Flu season will be very interesting. It's either going to be a wave two for us. And it's going to get really bad or flu season is going to be really light because everyone's wearing masks and is socially distancing. And then it's going to set mm -hmm. us up really well for early spring racing. What I would like to see is I would like to see Spartan go back to their old style of U.S. National Series where they they probably don't have our first one till April or May just to play it safe. So we can all plan accordingly on the elite side, not have this hem and ho waffle overs is really going to happen race. So I would really just like to see them conserve. Here's the thing. Spartan does not want to go back and have to reschedule races, refund season passes, switch race tickets. They don't want to do any of that shit either. And it's costing them a lot of money to do all that. Like, yes, we've been on the struggle bus, not being able to race. Companies like Spartan have really been hurting. And so I believe that they should just plan later and then stick to it. So I'm hoping it's like an April, May start date. Because it keeps things simple. Yeah. And I also have more time to come back from my injury. And keep in mind, we were the people that predicted we'd be back by August of 2020. We were wrong. Everyone was wrong, but we were very wrong. I would just really like to see it be pushed back so there's none of this gray area. Yeah. Um, even though we're all anxious to race, like we're going to be fine. Rohan Barr, your buddy Rohan. Mm -hmm. Should I be worried if everyone my coach talks to seems to be injured right now? Question mark, smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's referring to Albin, myself, maybe him. Well, the good news is I'm not training John or Kirk. <laughs> Rohan's not injured. In fact, his fitness is progressing very nicely. Good job, He's Rohan. actually coming to us from Australia. I'd like to hear him talk. It's pretty awesome. We actually have a talk, uh, a Zoom call tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Which is what his time? I don't remember. I think it's a 18, 17 or 18 hour difference there ahead. Wow. Funny thing is, I thought it was this morning. So I sent him a Zoom invite at 5.55 this morning, sat there for a while, and then double checked our conversation, realized I had missed it by a day. Pull it together, Bracken. Better to be too early than too late. That's true. Uh, like you are for the VJ Jones podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Three questions left, folks. Hang tight. Kevin Finn, 2018 or 2018. What's the ideal warm-up for the infamous mile time trial coming up on November 2nd? Well, he's referring to OCR stars. Okay. Mile time trial has been announced for the first 
uh, event. Which we predicted. Humble brag. We have a follow-up question about that, and we did. What is the ideal warm-up for the infamous mile time trial coming up November 2nd? I'm going to tell you what right now. I'm going to give you exactly what I would do. Yes. I would go to the track. I would assume you should do this on a track. I would do a mile warm-up of running, you know, an aerobic effort. And then I would alternate 200s hard and easy. I would go a hard 200, reaching mile pace, and then a nice jog for 200. I'd repeat that for a mile, which is four bouts of that. You're really getting warm here, Kirk. 200 on, 200 off. That's perfect for a hard effort. We did that in college um, before all of our quality days. 200 on, 200 off for a mile. Um, Except we go out for a two-mile warm-up run outside, then come to the indoor track and do an extra mile of warm-up. So it would be three miles of running deep. Um, Remember, you want to feel that bite before the race. That mile time trial slaps you across the face hard. And then I would go after that into some dynamics, some stretching, and some strides or sprints, you know, 40 to 60 meters and lace up the racing flats, let my heart rate come down for two to three minutes, and then get to work. That's exactly what I would do if I were racing it. What would you do, Bracken? Well, I like that, but I am not in college fitness right now, and a lot of people aren't. So while I don't disagree with it, I'm going to give the light version of that. Okay. I'm actually going to do a little bit longer. Well, maybe it's not. I'm going to do eight to 10 minute jog. And then I am going to do one probably 200 meter acceleration just to topping out around mile pace but slowly getting up to that and then i'm going through mm-hmm. my full dynamic warm-up routine and then i am going to do two strides and then i'm going to do 300 meters fast faster than mile pace and then i'm going to recover for two or three minutes you're going you're to build up some lactate in that 300 yep. you're going to feel a burn want to be like oh shit you're going to want you're going to get that flush that out first Yep. And then I'm going to walk around for two or three minutes, maybe do a a 30 or 50 meter acceleration hard, walk up to the line and get going. So you like the, I mean, you're not doing that much less work than me. I'm not doing a mile of ins and outs Mm, because that's not part of my normal routine and I wouldn't test it out on time trial day. Yeah. But my standard race warm up, easy jog, dynamic work, strides, go. Cool. Not doing a lot of static stretching beforehand. Doing zero. Yeah. Uh, two questions left. I like them both. Jay Crawdaddy, what's your take on putting on some extra muscle slash fat in between season, i.e. i.e. winter? My thoughts on it. You know, we have a good buddy, Mike Ferguson. <laughs> yes, we do. I know where you're going. Yeah. Mike Ferguson really likes to eat. And Mike Ferguson would pack on 20 pounds in like two months. He can put on weight as quickly as any person I've ever seen. And take it off. And he never looks bad. No. Uh, he would still run maybe half the volume. He's still running, but he would just eat and eat and eat. And then he had the realization that it took him a lot longer to come back and get into shape and it wasn't worth it. So he stopped doing that and kept his fitness high and found a lot of success doing that. I don't know if you're talking about a pound or two, or you're talking about 20 pounds like Mr. Ferguson. Mike, if you're listening, I miss you, buddy. Reach out. Yeah. It's been a long time since we've talked. Um, but, uh, I think there is some benefit to gaining weight in the off season for hormone and hormone balance, iron reproduction to just saturate again, putting on muscle and raw strength that you've lost through a long catabolic season of training. I think it's okay to gain, you know, five pounds of muscle or fat. I think you're going to feel pretty good doing it, to be honest, especially if you run lean to start with. If you are a soft athlete, one that always feels like they could lose weight. No, don't get fat in the off season. But for me, I find it beneficial. I find that I come out of that feeling pretty good. So I don't see a problem with it if you are naturally lean already. If you're a little tubby, 
don't. That's my advice. I really like having the least amount of fluctuation throughout a, uh, a, a lifetime as possible. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's hard on your body. It's hard on your systems. It's, it, it's tricky on every part of you to be going up and down a lot. And so I basically have two weights. I have my normal weight and then I have my peak season weight. And it's what like I, a three to four pound difference when I'm at peak season, max mileage, max intensity. I'm a three to four pounds lighter than my normal weight. I'm the exact same. Yep. So yeah, I do gain a little weight, but it's almost like regressing to my norm. Right. So I'll go nine, eight to nine months out of the year at 170 to 172. And I'll spend three months out of the year at 167 to 169. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in season peak fitness is also like you're riding that edge of the depleted state. Yep. The fine line of it where you can still compete and race well, but you are close to kind of going overboard and an off season is just a time where that's not such a factor. That being said, right now I'm coming off the heaviest I've ever been and attempting to trim down a bit. Mm, you still look good in my eyes, Bracken. I feel good, Kirk, and that's what matters. I don't need to see it on the scale, but I feel best running a few pounds lighter than what I'm at right now. Mm. Does it feel good and you look good or does it look good and you feel good? You gotta look good to feel good. Yes, you do. Last question. The Harveys. 40. Are you going to follow up on the release of OCR stars workouts being released? Meaning you want us to give you free advice on how to train or perform at these specific events, which is what we do. We give free advice. What do you think about that Bracken? Well, you're not going to get much of a head start, right? No, we know the mile time trials coming week one and then nothing else is released, but the names of the events, like the gripper chipper is week two, but we don't know what that means yet and that's going to be released like on november 2nd like the week prior week of so we could try but it's going to be too late we it'll be in us it'll be an addendum to the episode we're not going to give you a whole episode on how to attack the gripper chipper it could be a how to approach that wad mm-hmm. um but i don't think we're gonna be able to do anything ahead of time the mile time trial we literally in our training for ocr stars episode we're our base outline was to prep for something like a mile time trial we said mile and 10k yeah mm-hmm. Right now, we've seen the miles ready. So if you're following this plan, you're already 50% of the way there. And at the end of the day, we're the running public, not the CrossFit public. So Gripper Chipper just doesn't excite us the same amount that the mile time trial does. I will. We'll probably chat about strategy once it's released, but we're not going to probably devote whole episodes. It'll be too last minute. That's all I have. That would be it. Jack Bauer. Listen, Jack, I'm going to open up my Instagram right now for you because I could tell your feelings were hurt. And there are some questions in here from you. Now, where are they, Bracken? You do recall, correct? They were in here. He said he sent them to your DM, whether it was text or your Instagram account, I don't know, but it wasn't to the running public. Here it is. All right, Jack Bauer. If you're not listening to this, Jack Bauer, we have problems. Question one. I said there were no more questions and then I forgot about Jack, but now I'll never forget about you, Jack. Question one. If you're fully healthy, do you stick with running only on your harder sessions or do you swap out some running reps for cross training, air bike, rower, incline power hike, et cetera? Basically being proactive as far as injury goes and can you be as fit that way? If you're prefacing this with if you're fully healthy, that generally means that you're not always fully healthy. Correct. Because a healthy runner wouldn't say, now assuming I get healthy again. So if you have injury issues, you should always be proactive. Running your best volume is not your best volume if it is going to bring you back to the place you were. So yeah, start subbing stuff out. 
However, we're believers in you run as much as you can possibly run without having any negative side effects. So that's it. Yeah. If you're injury prone, which I am, Bracken apparently is, hopefully never again. I'm not injury prone. I'm snake bit. Snake bit. Snake bit. Then you do need that snake oil, Bracken. Maybe you're looking at the wrong. <laughs> That's what I've been missing. Ah, vegetable capsules. Um, Jack, I think, struggles once in a while with volume and injury. I believe he's under the radar with it most times. However, um, I really like the one quality non-impact and one quality run impact workout a week. You can do like a like a Tuesday run interval and then a Friday non-impact interval and then follow up your Friday with like a Saturday long run. For example, two high quality sessions, one are non-impact works great. Um, so yes, the answer is yes, especially if you're injury prone, I will be doing that myself. Question two, say my treadmill workout is two minutes hard, one minute easy for 10 rounds. So two on, one off. Common workout. I like that workout. Do you ever switch it up? 15% run for a few rounds, 25% hike for some, 0% run for a few, etc. Or do you always stick to the format of, for example, 10%, 10 at the same percent grade? Is it okay to run the fast stuff, then power hike the recovery, or do you run the recovery phase two? So he's basically asking, really switching up, even within the same workout, the stimulus. I keep them separate when I'm not near competition. I'll have uphill interval days and flat interval days. And as we get close to a course that requires the need to function between both, then I do both throughout a workout. You signed me those when we were working together, and I like them. They're also really damn hard. Mm -hmm. So I call, I call them sandwich intervals. So like you would hit four reps at 15% for two minutes, simulating a climb out of the gates. Then you'd hit four reps at 0% incline, and then you'd hit your last four reps at back to 15% or something like that. Something with rhyme or reason instead of sporadic changing. Mm -hmm. I don't mind that. In fact, I really like starting fast, climbing in the middle, and then trying to end fast after you've been climbing. That is a tough yeah. go, and it simulates a lot of racing. So uh, the answer is yes. I would just have rhyme or reason. And I would always try to run fast after climbing. I like to end that way. We never end at the top of a mountain in a race. Never. Except unless you're doing a vertical K. His, he asked because he says, and I agree with this, and we talk about this. Personally, I feel like the human body knows effort based on heart rate, not running pace. As long as you put in good effort in the correct heart rate zones, you can usually get away with mixing it up. At the same time, there's value in being OCR specific, especially since OCR is primarily a running sport. Just curious what your thoughts are. And the one caveat I want to say to that, Jack, is that, yes, heart rate, our body knows effort, not pace. I agree with that. But our body also knows stimulus. And when you get to inclines that racing may require, you will be recruiting more in different muscles, for example, climbing steep grade versus running flat. So you do need to train like the biomechanical efficiency and you know strength of those specific movements. That's it. You nailed it. You're Thanks. welcome, Jack. And then it says, I swear, Kirk, if you skip my question for the fourth straight training Tuesday, I'm going to stop giving you background info for your guests. <laughs> he threatened me. And then he screenshot, he screenshot other questions of his that I didn't get you. So, Jack, I'm sorry. I love you. It's going to be okay, buddy. We'll send you a fruit basket. We'll send you a fruit basket. Hey, one free month of coaching, Jack, on the house. Bracken will take you on. That's generous of you. <laughs> it's a very giving. What else we got to add, Bracken? Anything coming up for us? Anything that people need to know? People need to know that I overextended slightly last Saturday. I had, oh. yep. And as a result, I pulled back this week and I'm not going to continue my my progression this weekend. I'm going Maybe. to, I'm not going to take it longer and, and, and more intense than last weekend. I'm going to pump the brakes and do another weekend of the weekend previous. And I just want to drive home the fact that 
just because you have something on paper does not mean you follow it blindly. I myself overprogrammed. I didn't think I was. On paper, I wasn't. But in terms of what my body could handle and recovery, recover from, I overextended and I needed to adjust and pull back. So do not be afraid in your big builds you have going on right now to pump the brakes from time to time and ensure that no one workout costs you your next workout. Use your head, not your heart. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I got nothing else. We, uh, we appreciate the questions, guys. That's fun. We like doing it. We'll do it again in another month. You guys come up with good stuff that we don't think of covering on our own. So thank you. See you guys. Enjoy the Q&A. We'll get back to an interview next week. Bye. Bye.